This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 15th. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. 29 weeks into what has thus far proven to be the most unheralded, if not unprecedented, year in history. But buckle up and hold on, because we've still got 23 weeks to go. And there's no shortage of turbulence ahead this year, as that stubborn coronavirus continues to tighten its grip. Civil issues abound, teams are changing names, statues are coming down, elections are coming up, and a most fragile economy and our very way of life continues hanging in the balance. So, how's that for a backdrop following a two-week break for the celebration of our nation's 244th birthday? Well, believe it or not, that backdrop is actually quite appropriate, given the story that you're going to hear today. And Jane Plitt is coming right along to tell it. I'm talking about the life of one Martha Matilda Harper, someone that most of us, I'm sure, have never heard of, but we should all know. As nearly 130 years ago, she gave birth to the very first hair salon in America and went on to become an ingenious businesswoman, entrepreneur, and inventor, and, oh, and if that's not enough, with some 500 or so locations to her credit globally, she became the mother of retail franchising in America during some of the then most difficult and challenging times for all Americans, much less for an immigrant single woman born out of a life of servitude. This is a compelling story, and Jane is here to tell it. Jane Plitt herself is a most impressive woman in her own right. Before immersing herself into the research that led to the telling of the story, Jane ran a thriving consulting practice in Rochester, New York, which is where this whole story begins. In 1996, Jane was appointed a visiting scholar to the University of Rochester to pursue her Harper research. This resulted in a book entitled Martha Matilda Harper and the American Dream, How One Woman Changed the Face of modern business. The book was released in May of 2000, and as you will learn today, it reveals the story of an utterly amazing woman that history had nearly completely forgotten. Instead, Plitt has brought the story back to life, and in 2003, Martha Matilda Harper was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, as well as the American Business Hall of Fame. In 2017, Plitt released a young children's book entitled Martha's Magical Hair, just before co-writing a young adult version of the Harper story, Martha the Hairpreneur, with Sally Valentine, and releasing the Harper story in paperback just last year. Here now to share the stories of both of these compelling women is one of them herself. Jane Plitt, welcome to Franchise Today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. So I'm fascinated by this story that you've shared with me, and today you're going to help the audience learn about an incredible and remarkable woman who was at the forefront of franchising way back before most Most of us thought franchising had a retail component to it as structured and organized as this so that we can help the audience learn more and catch up with what I've learned and what you know a whole lot about. Tell us your elevator speech about why you're here today. Well, as a former businesswoman and a visiting scholar, I have uncovered the forgotten brilliance of the founder of modern day franchising. And it happens to be a woman who was poor, immigrant, but incredibly determined and innovative. And 
her lessons of success are totally applicable to us today. And her record of achievement has been buried for years. And it's important to know how she succeeded and how 500 franchises around the world ended up being created by this poor immigrant servant and how she succeeded even during the Great Depression rings true for the lessons that all of us as business people can apply to our operation today. So I'm about to inspire people with her story, her practicality, and her lessons of business success. And we need to give life to who we're talking about, her name, Martha Matilda Harper. That's right. Isn't that just a fabulous name that you're never going to forget again? I mean, it's got power to it. It's got a whole lot of power to it. So unpack this story for us by starting with your life. You were a small business person. You were an entrepreneur running your own business where? In Rochester, New York, where Martha Matilda Harper had over a hundred years before me started a business was in the foremost building in Rochester known as the Powers Building. And my firm, it was a 12-person marketing consulting operation, was brought in by the community bank that had renovated the building. And they wanted to engage the general public in the renovation and the grand opening. And what we did was suggest that because it was a historic building, we should engage the entire community with their memories, their memorabilia, and facts linked to the building. Well, one of those artifacts was a little clipping about a woman. Her name was Martha Matilda Harper, and she opened the first public hair salon for women in 1888, the same year that George Eastman launched his modern Kodak camera in Rochester. And Martha, this little article said, was the first woman member of the Chamber of Commerce. I was the president of the Small Business Council of that chamber, and I called the chamber and and said, what do we know about this first woman member of the chamber? And they came back and said, nothing. We don't know anything, but when you find out, let us know. Well, I'm always someone who you do not challenge. And with that challenge, I started looking. Thought I'd find her in who's who or whatever, but there was nothing. So I went to the Library of Congress when I was on a different business assignment in Washington, D.C., and a wonderful librarian spent two hours with me and he couldn't find anything except he found her obituary in 1950. The New York Times had done a two column obituary about this woman. And those of us who followed women's stories knew that they normally belonged on the Society Women's page, but few women were ever written up as people of accomplishment for the New York Times obituary in 1950. So I knew she had to be important. And in this obituary, it talks about how world leaders were her customers, Susan B. Anthony was her customer, and she had this this worldwide network of franchises. And it just seemed like somebody should write her story. But 
I was not a historian. I was a businesswoman. So I went back to running my business. But it was as though she captured my mind and I couldn't get her out of it. And I finally said, if it was this difficult to find out the little I found out about her, who will ever tell her story? And I said, well, you know, I'll spend six months and I'll devote myself to finding her story. Instead of six months, it took six years of crisscrossing the United States and Canada. I was determined, curious, and persistent. And I knocked on people's doors who had been former Harper associates. I looked at her will and her husband's will and found out all the people. And I tried to find where they lived and contacted them. And what was amazing was that everybody opened their door to me. What is most extraordinary was to uncover how much was saved. One of the more extraordinary was Betty Wheeler. I found her in Wisconsin. She had the original artifacts of Martha's reclining shampoo chair. Martha invented the reclining shampoo chair. And she had an extraordinary number of photographs and of documents all about this Harper empire and newsletters enabling me to piece together historically what Martha had started with and how she built her operation. Those items are now safely at the Rochester Museum and Science Center, as are all of her other artifacts that I came upon. But it was not only those artifacts, but just the determination of these women that Martha, their heroine, should not have her story totally buried. And they were willing to keep it for decades, awaiting my arrival, which was quite amazing. And as somebody who had received a number of awards for running a business, I have since been very pleased that Harper has been recognized as one of the 60 people who helped shape American business. Sir Harold Evans wrote a book called They Made America. And and Martha is one of the entrepreneurs that Sir Harold Evans cites. And she has been recognized and to now the National Hall of Fame for Women and the American Business Hall of Fame. And now what's important is that franchisors and franchisees come to honor this extraordinary pioneer. We're going to get more in depth on her life and spend the good part of our time together speaking about Martha, but just foundational material about yourself is helpful. So you owned your own business and set off on a six-week mission that turned into a six-year. Yes, that's correct. So what happened to your business? Well, for a while, I was able to balance it and continue to operate it. And then at some point, I realized that this was the focus of my life. And so I transitioned from being a business owner to being a visiting scholar at the university of Rochester and continuing my efforts for the investigation and the writing of this story. And I've gone on now to become a speaker and consultant for businesses and communities to help inspire them in ways that mirror how Harper, as a woman, as an immigrant, 
as a determined but poor person could transform her life. And unfortunately, in today's day and age, it is still irrelevant. It almost seems like you are haunted, like this connection between you and Martha is not a coincidence. It just seems to me like there's a tie here that binds. There may be. There was a point when I could not find out why Martha had stepped down in the 1940s. And I was trying to piece it together. And none of the living Harper associates would tell me. I would say, what happened to Martha? Why did she step down? What happened? And they would, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And one evening, I woke up and screaming at Martha and saying, write your own book because I can't figure this out. And there was a little voice that I heard in my head and it said, I don't remember it. And the next day I knew why those employees were very silent. And I said to them, so when Martha developed dementia in the 40s, oh, you know, and that still gives me the goosebumps that somehow she communicated (laughs) or I I pieced it. You and I never talked about anything like that in preparation for today, but it just over the last few days occurred to me. The connection here is uncanny, kind of like franchising is an unintentional way of doing business. It's not something people go out and look for. It finds them. And I feel like that's happened to you with this. I think that's probably true. I never thought about it in that light, but I think you may have hit the nail on the head. So let's get into this story and share with the audience the amazing life of Martha chronologically. What are some of these milestones that occurred that she had tremendous foresight into a way of doing business that was literally just beginning? And it's ironic too that hair cutting and hair care and taking care of the body has become one of the largest verticals in franchising to day, but we were about 150 years ahead of schedule here, weren't we? We were. Um, Let me just take a step back and place her. She's born in 1857 outside of Toronto in what is today an affluent community, but was not then. It was outside of Oakville, Ontario. And she's born into poverty. She's one of seven children. And her father is basically a lazy good for nothing. And he bounds out each of the children. And Martha is bound out at age seven. She's sent 60 miles away from home, which in that era was almost like being sent across the ocean. And her job was to basically be a servant and all of her wages would come back to her father and family. For 25 years, she is bound into this role of being a servant. But from what she wrote, we know that she was determined to break out of what seemed to be her destiny. And when she thought about marrying, she realized that that would just keep her in what she viewed as servitude because her mother had no ability to stop her father from sending her children away. At that time, women had no right to custodial rights or property right or the right to vote. And so Martha learned from that and decided it's not the route of freedom that I'm going down. But her last Canadian employer was a 
holistic doctor from Germany, and he taught her about healthy hair care. This is the Victorian era in which people don't wash their hair. And he taught her the importance of not only washing your hair, but stimulating the scalp for blood flow. And it happened that he had a unique hair tonic. On his deathbed, he bequeathed to Martha the formula for the hair tonic. And with that, she believes she has the key to breaking out of servitude. But it was going to take a few more big steps. One of them was she took the ferry across Lake Ontario to Rochester, New York, which was a hotbed of entrepreneurial efforts. As I mentioned, there was George Eastman from Eastman Kodak. There was Bausch and Loam, Leeson Works, many other immigrants with entrepreneurial ideas that were coming up on the Erie Canal and stopping in Rochester. So this was a community that was used to different ideas. It was also a community that had brought Frederick Douglass, an African-American who had been enslaved, to write about abolition in the North Star magazine that some of us are aware of. So we know that the community was also aware of what I would consider to be thought of as advocates for civil rights or even rabble-rousers. Susan B. Anthony is in this community, and she's beginning to talk about women's rights and the right to vote. When Martha arrives, she's still a servant, but it turns out that the couple that she ends up working for essentially never had a child and ended up adopting her. So there is this unique relationship. And because they are moneyed at the time, Martha observes where all the business is being done. And it's being done in that powers building that I mentioned earlier. So after a few years, she came in 1882 to Rochester and six years later, with $360 worth of lifetime earnings, she attempts to open that hair salon for women in the Powers Building. But the owner, Daniel Powers, would have nothing to do with it because he was sure it was going to attract the wrong kind of women, prostitutes and trollops. We begin to see how clever and determined Martha is because she doesn't collapse and say, oh, woe is me, it's not going to happen. Instead, she says, I have to find someone who has influence with Daniel Powers. And she chooses the attorney who had co-represented Susan B. Anthony on the issue of voting. And he is a tenant in the building, but he's also a former congressman. And I, I envision the conversation going, Danny, let her in. Come on, give her a chance. And Powers finally relents and agrees, but on condition that there will be no lease and he can throw her out. So Martha's in, she's in on the fifth floor. And now we begin to see those wheels turning as a brilliant marketeer. This is a whole new business niche. How is she going to advertise it? She doesn't have a whole lot of money. She takes a picture that was taken by a photographer and she had floor length hair. Those of your listeners, I encourage you to take a look at 
her book on Amazon or on the website, and you'll see this ravishing auburn women's hair, and she puts it in the front of her door. People would say, what's going on here? And the other thing she did was she looked around and she realized that next door was a music teacher and that mothers were bringing their children for lessons, but there was no waiting room. So she boldly, but diplomatically, would stand out and say to those women, why don't you come in and rest your weary feet? And so she pulled them into her store, into her operation. And remember, as I mentioned, she'd invented this reclining shampoo chair. She understood that if women were going to experience this public experience of hair care, they couldn't have their eyes burned. So she had the hair go backwards and she cleverly had a cutout on the sink so that you could rest your neck much more comfortably. Sidelight, I would say, is I go to a salon that does not have that cutout and they have to be encouraged to do what Martha did. So for 25 years, she'd become expert at delighting what I would say would be the customer. She delighted the people she worked for. And so we see as she begins to launch her new business, how she brings that expertise and sensitivity to her operation. And in so doing, she starts bringing others into her business and scaling this. Let's learn more about some of that. And she has determined that her success is not going to be a singular success and that she is going to make a difference for other poor women. So she starts bringing in other poor women to be assistants. And then this operation really took off. And the socialites of Rochester would bring out-of-towners there. And they loved it. So we have Bertha Palmer being brought from Chicago when she visits Rochester into the shop. And Bertha is looking at 1893 when there will be the Columbian World Exhibit in Chicago. And she's in charge of the women's pavilion. So she says to Martha, I want you to open a shop in Chicago in time for this. Well, we also see how bold Martha is because she said, well, if you would like me to come, then I need a petition from 25 of your best friends signed that will say, if I come, your friends will patronize me. So we learned from Martha that you need to commit the customer. And she didn't need any market research that was going to take care of it. And of course, Bertha delivers and now Martha's stuck. She has to figure out how the heck in the 1890s am I going to get the means to expand. And she comes up with this new concept. She looks at her church. It was the Christian Science. Had a very strong mother church in Boston. And it had satellite operations. And it was clear that the dictates and the training and everything is coming out of Boston. And she said, I, I can duplicate that. The headquarters will be here. And then all the satellites will operate just the way I 
I train people for and all the material will be standardized. And that was in 1891. The first franchise was in Buffalo and then it was Detroit and it did open in time for the World's Fair in 1893 in Chicago. And this is is absolutely the root for her to empower poor women. So not only are they going to be her assistants, but they are going to be independent business owners. And I don't think she knew that the word franchising came from the French, which means to free from servitude. But that is how and why modern retail franchising was born. And so for those in the audience who abide by 1851 being the birth of franchising and Singer, the first franchise in America. What do you say to that? I wonder if she even knew who he was. I don't think so. But as I share in the book, what Singer and International Harvester began to do was they had agents and then they had independent agents who sold other non-Singer or Harvester products. That is not what we know today as being what modern franchising is. Modern franchising retail franchising has exclusive control. And that is exactly what Martha did. So they were taking baby steps towards it, but they were not the founders of modern retail franchising. Martha was. Why don't we take a quick break right here? And when we come back, I'd like to take this story forward to the growth of her concept and growing from a single location in Rochester, New York, first franchise awarded in Buffalo. Let's take a break and come back and talk about how all of that grew into a 500 location enterprise. We'll be right back with Jane Plitt. Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle, providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online, and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice, dice, and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball, but there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself. It's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. And we are continuing the story of Martha Matilda Harper, America's first retail franchisor, way back in the late 1800s with the first hair concept in America that has probably one of the largest verticals in franchising today is hair care. And Martha Matilda Harper was way, way, way ahead of that curve. Jane Plitt is the author who has researched the life of Martha, uncovered it as it was missing, literally lost in American history, and is here today sharing 
sharing with us all that she has learned and how today's franchise community can learn and benefit so much from the sage wisdom of Martha Matilda Harper, who did not know the word quit, did she, Jane? No, she didn't. So move us forward in time and help us with milestones that helped her grow her business into the large enterprise that it became. Well, as I explained, it became very, very important to both socialites, but also the suffrage movement to be supportive of this network. And communities, both in the United States, but around the world, started saying, I want to shop. I want to shop. And so Martha began to standardize. She established a manufacturing center. Her products were all organic. She did not believe in dangerous chemicals. And she had specific methodology for how Harper operators would behave. There was to be no gossip, but even their technique, doing facials and washing hair and grooming hair and stimulating the scalp were all described in training manuals. And she had training centers both in the United States and in Canada. Her shops became so important, not only to women, but also men, that when President Wilson was negotiating the Treaty of Versailles in World War One, he went nightly to the Paris Harper Salon in order to have relaxing scalp massages. And the demand both from women and men for the service resulted in the 500 plus shops. British royalty, George Bernard Shaw, Danny Kaye, Helen Hayes, were all delighted customers. Even I found a check from Mrs. Lyndon Johnson from the White House. She was a customer. The Kennedy clan was a customer. Joe Kennedy was the only customer I know of for whom a Harper operator went to the mansion in Palm Beach. But otherwise, all Kennedy clan folks came into the shop, both in Hyannisport as well as in Florida. What do you know about how she managed to regulate these operators across the world? world and in the late 1800s we weren't hopping on airplanes or driving cars to do field support or field visits to protect Uh, the integrity of the brand but she did hop on trains and she did monitor operations and there is some documentation how she had set up her niece in an operation outside of toronto and the niece was carrying non-harper products and martha shut her down. Um, So Martha was also the one who would choose the shop locations. And as we know, location, location, location. She had a sixth sense of where shops had to be. So she would also be the person going out saying, this is where we're going to locate. And if there was a terrible fire as there was in Detroit and elsewhere, she'd be there and saying, and here is where we're going to relocate. And what we learned from the people who worked for her, they were called Harperites, what they say is their world was totally changed and opened up. So by choosing these poor women as her first franchisees, she was brilliantly assuring herself in general of great loyalty. So the amount of time that she spent in directing how procedures were to flow was 
was rewarded by the loyalty of these people. And you also use newsletters and would write to them in a loving family way. And she would write, my dear girls. And she would share success stories and challenges of different operations. She also was very clear about how important it was to listen to your employees. So in one of her columns, she talks about how the first item on a staff meeting has to be employee feedback. This is before you announce, you know, your new rules and operation. You need to first listen to your employees. She had a huge mansion in Rochester and any time that people were coming in for training, they would stay at her mansion. It was like the Harper Hotel. She also had celebrations, reunions, and bringing everybody in to go over procedures, but also to building that esprit de corps. That all speaks to why I came across so many Harperites who had saved pieces of memorabilia, letters, memories, even pins that they had received from the Harper operation. She differed as the competition developed in the beauty industry. She differed radically. Charles Revson from Revlon talked about selling hope in a jar. And she told her people, we're bringing out, and your job is to bring out the inner beauty of every customer. That's a very different focus. Hope in a jar versus inner beauty. That didn't mean she didn't have products. It's just that she had different kind of products. And she wasn't trying to simply momentarily delight people. She wanted an ongoing relationship. She taught her people how to encourage bringing children into the shop. You want children and you want basically a little children's center because she said, this is not only making it easy for mothers to bring their children while they have hair care or skin care, but you are familiarizing them with your shop and therefore you are recruiting them as early Harper customers. And as I interviewed people, I came across people who said I, I was the child and I knew this was the place where I had to come to be taken care of. So she was very visionary. Later in life, she rethought the decision about marriage, didn't she? In fact, she married a younger man. Yes, she did. After she had well-established franchising and the Harper Empire, she took a vacation in Yellowstone Park and was charmed by her guide. And he happened to be 24 years younger. And she had a multi-year courtship with him. And she brought him in ultimately as her executive assistant. And they were in New York City. And she says to him, Robbie, I just bought my trousseau. Would you like to see it? And he indicates, wow, who is the lucky man? And she says, you are. And that was how they got married. And I believe this is true because this is his story, Robert McBain's, being recorded at his university. So he told the story 
and she didn't. So he married her. Uh, he was 39 and she was 63. And this business grew to 500 locations globally at its peak before it was sold in 1972. But I'm really curious if you could impart in the time that we've got left to the audience some of those lessons that you've taken out of this research that you've literally surrendered your life to and how closely it mirrors the world we're in today and some of the things that franchisors today can apply from the stories of Martha Matilda Harper. I'd love to. Let me first identify what I've called the Ten Commandments of Harper's success. And it was first to dare to dream and persevere. That you needed a dream, but you needed to be determined. The next was to seize opportunity. Capitalize on your assets. With Harper, it's clear not only her hair, but her sensitivity to delighting the customer. Commit and delight the customer would be something else. She knew that you weren't just interested in a one-time relationship. Innovate. Think outside the box. For sure, that's exactly what Martha did, and it is what's needed in order to compete in today's competitive world. Win-win strategies. She understood that if all she cared about was herself, that her success would not be as powerful. So she developed relationships with both her customers as well as her employees and franchisees and lead and brand. The Harper Method represented quality care and product. And around the world, you knew when you went into a Harper shop that you were assured of that. Also reward your staff and your customers. And that is so important and what vital to Martha and to celebrate your success. She understood that if all you did was just work and didn't say, hooray, we accomplished something wonderful. And so she had her annual reunions and celebrations. So when we bring it to today, and I have pulled out some key concepts that Martha applied during the Great Depression, when she didn't lose a single shop. She believed in fair play for employees. And therefore, today she would urge shop owners to remember her employees and figure out ways to help them through this crisis, whether it would be childcare, whether it would be modifying hours, safety precautions, innovative reorganization, and the like. But you are nothing without loyal employees. Flexible hours and pay. During the Depression, she talked about modifying the hours so that her customers could come in in the evenings and the like. But then she was quick to say, but that might not be as convenient for my employees, so I'm going to give them extra time off and the like. Teamwork. She would pull people in and say, what are the needs? Let me hear from you before she would start saying, well, here's the strategy of success in the COVID crisis. But she would be looking at how to use digital mechanisms, how to use 
use other means of communicating with your customer. She always held her operation up as the leader and she wasn't into being a low price operation, but she did implement creative pricing. So she targeted at the time, one of the groups was teachers. Right now, she would target uh, the first responders. She would develop a whole different price scheme for the people. And then she would promote it so the word would get out. Quality reassurance. This is a time when many of us, most of us, are very nervous about how safe is an operation. Well, she would be assuring what was being done. And she would she would make jokes about it. She would have posters about it. She would have it on social media about just how clean an operation, Harper operation would be. Those are some of the ideas. I'm only sorry that I can't take questions. I'm going to, so that we don't have to take the time to post to the Franchise Today Facebook page, all of the links to your website and to your works, and as well, tell those in the audience that want to read about Martha that they can find your book, Martha Matilda Harper and the American Dream. I'm certain at Amazon and elsewhere, is that correct? That is correct. That is absolutely correct. You've been a real delight, and I love your story, and as I told you before we agreed to have you on, that the toughest thing we were going to have to do was to contain this to a condensed interview. I would love the privilege to be able to hear you speak in maybe Rochester or in a university environment, in a lecture environment, to hear the whole story without the constraints of time. Because it's a remarkable one and you've given your life to it. And I can't wait to someday meet you and say thank you for sharing it with us here. Thank you. And it doesn't have to be a university setting. I chatted with people at various franchise groups in order to target how a particular organization can creatively apply Harper's brilliance to today. And the one thing Martha most of all represents is that failure is impossible. If you use her basic concepts, we all can succeed. And to her, that would be important that all of us be successful. Jane Plitt, thank you again for sharing the story, an incredible story of Martha Matilda Harper. Hopefully some of our franchise or members of our audience will be in touch with you as well to bring more of that story to their conventions and conferences as well. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Well, we ran a little long today, but I thought the story was compelling, and I hope you'll agree. And to think, this entire chapter in American franchise history was nearly lost until Jane Plitt brought it back to life. Well, that's about it for today. All we've got time for is for me to remind you to just keep doing the best you can. And I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising. And Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.